Welcome to Easter Sunday 2022. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the resurrection, but that will be more at the end of what we talk about today. Uh, I want to start you off in the book of Exodus. Now, if you remember at the beginning of the book of Exodus, if you've ever been around this book before, the country, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were enslaved to Egypt. They were slaves to Pharaoh, and they were forced into hard labor. Uh, they were groaning for God to, uh, to release them, to save them, to deliver them. 400 years went by, and Israel stayed in slavery for those four centuries. To give you a little bit of, of a, a, a benchmark for that, the United States of America is 246 years old. So this, uh, the, the nation of Israel would have been enslaved much longer than, uh, than the age of the United States. Now imagine if we, for the past 246 years, have just been slaves the whole time. What would it be like if there was 400 years of that? What would that do to our, our culture? What would that do to our faith? What would that do to our outlook? What would that do about, uh, about our regard for the nations that are ruling over us? What would that do? When for 400 years, generation after generation, father to son, mother to daughter, there's just this legacy passed on of why, why? Why do the wicked prosper? And why do we suffer? How can we be God's people and be in this kind of a plight? After 400 years, finally, in Exodus chapter 12, uh, God delivers the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt by using this guy named Moses. Uh, Moses was, uh, he was really just a servant of God. God did all the work. Moses was just the guy that, that he did it through. So God is the rescuer. Moses is, is really just a vessel. Uh, and, but this, this, this moment in history where Moses is used by God to deliver and to rescue the people of Israel becomes the most important event for the people of Israel, uh, particularly for them to understand salvation. When you talk about salvation, to the Jews, they would think of this event where Moses saved them, where God saved them using Moses. You, you get the idea. But God did it through 10 plagues, 10 supernatural phenomena that were unleashed on the nation of Egypt. Miraculous powers of, uh, uh, that were displayed. Uh, each plague, they weren't just random plagues. It wasn't just like God was like, oh, I got some, some ideas here, let's just throw them out. They weren't just random plagues. Each plague targeted a different individual Egyptian god. Each plague was a statement that the God of Israel, Yahweh God, was greater than all the other gods, that there is only one God and the other gods are false. They cannot deliver you. They cannot stop the one true God because they're not real. There was this big statement being made by each of the plagues and stuff. One of the plagues turned the Nile River into blood. Another plague brought uh, swarms of frogs. Another one brought locusts. Another one brought darkness. Another one brought pestilence or disease. And yet the 10th plague, the very final one, there were 10 plagues, the very last one is the one that we're going to focus on today on this particular Easter Sunday. If you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 12, we have it up on the screen, but it's always good to have it in your hand too. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, the Lord, 
L-O-R-D, capital letters, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, he said, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, just take a moment here. God has just delivered the people. They're, uh, they're exiting Egypt, and on their way out, you know, God has a conversation with them. He, he gives them certain laws and things, and one of the things is he says, okay, set your calendar now. From now on, your calendar starts at this moment. This idea where I have saved you, that's the beginning. That's where your timeline begins now. That's now your first month. Now, on the 10th day of the first month, take aside a lamb. So you have to, you have to select a lamb on the 10th day. You, you select a lamb for your family to represent your family and stuff, and, uh, and that's what you would do. And there were specific instructions that the lamb cannot be a defective lamb. You can't, you can't take like the, the most broken lamb in your, uh, in your uh, herd or something like that. You have to take a, a lamb that's perfect without blemish. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So stop there for a second. Uh, you choose the lamb on the 10th day. You, you keep it until the 14th day. And on the 14th day, everybody has chosen the lamb, and they are supposed to kill the lamb. They're supposed to slay it, slaughter it. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. The lintel is the crossbeam, you know, and then the doorpost. It's the doorway. It's the, you know, the, the doorway is three, three things, right? It's the, the right, the, the left, and then the top, right? So the two doorposts are the right and the left. The lintel is the top. That's where you put the blood, Okay. Uh, so you, you put the blood on the doorway, and then he's, for the next few verses, he'll give some instructions on how to prepare and eat the lamb, the, the meat of the lamb, to, uh, to eat its flesh. Okay, verse 12. God says, here's the plague, okay? Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Now, this is a, a monumental moment, right? This is the defining moment in the history of Israel regarding salvation. And, uh, and God says, remember this day. Remember that I saved you. You remember this. And it's not just like a fact that you keep in mind. He says, every year you come back and you celebrate this, that I have saved you. You celebrate that I have rescued you, that I've taken you out of slavery. You celebrate that. You remember it. You keep it. You cherish it. 
This was more important than birthdays, more important than anniversaries. It was more important than any kind of yearly thing. This was the event. And there's something so unique about this 10th plague. Because for the first nine plagues, uh, Israel was immune. They were excluded from the, the power of the, of the plague. So when the plagues came, the, uh, you know, the, the frogs came up, or the locusts, and the darkness, and the, the pestilence and disease, when that happened, it only affected Egypt. But then the Israelites, all the slaves, would kind of be uh, quarantined to this little area called Goshen, and they'd have to stay there. And wherever they were, the plagues would not affect them. But Egypt would be destroyed by these plagues. So for the first nine, Egypt was thrashed, and then Israel was safe. And yet for this tenth plague, no one was safe. No one was immune. No one was, was excluded from the danger. Everyone, all the Egyptians, all the Israelites, were going to be hit by this plague. Now, we are facing two problems for the Israelites they, they have two problems on their hands, okay? The first one is the slavery problem. The slavery problem, that's easy. You know, they, they were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves to Pharaoh. That's a big problem. Nobody wants to be a slave. That's a problem. So that's problem number one. They were slaves. Problem number two was the wrath problem. The wrath problem. Uh, wrath, it, you, you can kind of use the word anger for it, but it's like a, it, it's a stronger word than that. I'll talk about it in a second, but God's anger, his, his, the 10th the plague is, is still God's anger being poured out on the, on the gods of Egypt, right? It's God's judgment being executed on the gods of Egypt. It's his anger, but the Israelites were now in danger of this 10th plague too. Up until now, they were safe, but now they're in danger, and they're like, why are we included in this? We don't worship the gods of Egypt, why should we have to fear this plague? And yet this is different than all the things before. So they were targets of this 10th plague. God's wrath was coming for them just like it was for the Egyptians. Okay, so wrath isn't a word we use every day, right? When we, uh, when we use the word wrath, it's, it's, it's usually more decorative. It's, it's in literature or something like that. Uh, God's wrath was coming for them. And I want to make sure we understand what this word wrath is. Wrath is not just anger. And, uh, and I, I certainly don't want you to think that uh, wrath is just some guy flying out of control and yelling and screaming and throwing things. That's not wrath. In the Bible, God's wrath is his ongoing hatred for sin and evil. It's this ongoing hatred and his plan to ultimately destroy sin and evil. And he's very calculating on that. He has a, a, a strategic approach to how he's going to do it. He's set events throughout the history of mankind. He knows exactly how he's going to bring it to a point where he finally and eternally destroys sin and evil. So his wrath is not just him screaming, yelling, and throwing things. It's not that. He has a very strategic plan on how he's going to get there. And he knows the timing of every event. He's going to judge evil. Evil can be things that, that we do. Evil can be things that are done to us. Evil can be the effects and the results of the evil that's been done in the world, all the consequences and 
repercussions of it. And Israel was in danger. So their problems were slavery to Egypt and then wrath from God. But God gave instructions to the people of Israel. And he says, if you want to be saved, here's the plan. You had to do something. If you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew, you had to do something. You couldn't just sit back and go, but I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I should be exempt. God says, no, 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 no. You have to participate. I will rescue you, and I will provide everything, all the means of salvation. You are responsible to act on it. You have to kill that lamb. You got to put the, uh, the blood of the lamb on your doorway, on the right and on the left and on the lintel above. And you do that as an act of trust and obedience to God. Because if you, if you, uh, if you didn't do that, then it's because you don't think you're really in danger. Or you don't think it's important to obey God in this. But if you, if you took God seriously and he said, my power is coming against everyone. And this is the only solution to be saved from it. My wrath is coming to destroy evil. And this is the only solution. If you take that seriously, that if you understand the wrath of God is coming, and if you fear him properly, knowing his holiness and his righteousness and his judgment against sin, then you would turn and trust him and say, whatever solution he provides, I will go after. I'll take it. Right? He, he could tell you to give any, any instructions he wants, he'd give you, and you'd say, I'll do it, because otherwise, I believe that his wrath is coming. And I fear it. So if you, you, know, if you trusted him, then, then you, would, you would do this thing. It's a very odd ritual. Take a lamb, kill it, take the blood, put it over here and here, and then eat the flesh. And you would go through this, this very uh, peculiar process. It's a weird thing because it's not something that you would do every day. He's not like just bake some bread. And then someone who bakes bread just accidentally got saved. It was, it was not like that. It was something that was, was so out of the ordinary. Now, this was, a, this was an act to say, God, I believe you, and I am not like anyone else under the Egyptian gods. I'm not like the nation of Egypt who's going to be judged. We are your people. We're set apart. We live different. And so you'd follow the instructions. You'd, you'd select the lamb on the 10th day. You'd kill it on the 14th day. You'd put the blood on, on your doorway, and then you would, uh, you would eat it in the, in the whole meal thing. This event became known as Passover because uh, the lamb... And its blood and, and that whole thing would make it so if you did that, God would see that blood as a sign on your doorway. He'd see that you have uh, trusted him. You, you believed his wrath was coming. You feared him and you trusted his solution and you followed it. And so his, his wrath would pass over your house. It would not enter your house and slay the firstborn. It would just pass over and you would be saved. So the lamb was called the Passover lamb. If you're a firstborn, an oldest son, you were the one in danger, right? So if you're a firstborn, if you're the oldest son, then you 
should have died by the plague. But instead of you dying, the Passover lamb dies in your place. It's what's called a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice or a substitute. It dies in your place. The Passover lamb dies for you. Do you see this setup taking place? And so this tells us two things about God. First is that God is judge. It tells you that God is judge. God hates sin, and God is working against it. God it will punish sin. That is who he is. Second is that God is redeemer. Only he can rescue. He gave a Passover lamb as a solution to rescue Israel from the 10th plague. Israel would not be able to think of a plan themselves. They would not be able to make something happen to protect them. There was nothing they could do against the wrath of God, but God himself would provide a way. So God warns that his wrath is going to affect everyone, right? He, he says, My, uh, the 10th plague is coming. It's going to get everyone, including Israel, and this is the only way out. And he, he gives them the instructions on that way. Anyone who follows it would be saved. That means that salvation is 100% provided by God. I think you'd agree on that, right? And what's peculiar about that is that individually, you had to do something, right? You had to do the lamb thing, and you had to do the blood thing, and then the, the eating the, the meal thing. You had to do all that stuff, so you had to participate. You had to actively respond in trust and in obedience. You had to. So you do have a part to play, but you wouldn't go, I saved myself because I killed a lamb and I put the blood, you know. It wasn't, the power wasn't in the thing that you did. That was just a sign to show that you trusted God. God provided the solution. God said, I'll save anyone who trusts me. And so you killed a lamb and all that stuff because you trusted him. But the, the lamb didn't have any magic powers. So salvation is 100% provided by God, by his sovereign will. And yet you are responsible to participate and to act in order to receive its benefits. And in this, a community is formed. Everyone who does that has now identified themselves as people of God. People who trust God instead of the gods of Egypt or instead of anything else, they trust God. God saved Israel from slavery, and God saved them to himself, to be his people. That's why Moses will say, you know, when Moses is, is actually the one delivering all these plagues by the power of God, uh, he'll say in Exodus 5, 7, 8, and 9, and 10, he'll say, let my people go, so that, they, so that they might serve the Lord. Like God will, will, will say, go, go tell them that. Go do that. Moses, go, you go tell Pharaoh. Walk up to his face. Look him in the eyes and you say, let my people go that they may serve me. Worship me. So you're saved out. You have to let my people go. They're saved out of slavery. Let my people go. And they're saved into worship that they might serve me. Now, all of this sounds like this, this great big story for Israel, which it certainly is, and it seems like it'd make a very good animated movie. 
But you and I today have the same two problems. I'll jump over to Ephesians chapter 2. And just uh, looking at the first three verses, it says, And you, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church, so he's talking to the Ephesians, but it's about all human beings, okay? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Look again at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. This is a statement about everyone, about all human beings. It's not just about Israel. This is true of, of everyone who has ever lived. And you have the same two problems as Israel. First, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sin, right? You, you, you caught that at the beginning. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You followed the prince of the power of the air. Okay, so this is now what the whole slavery thing in Egypt was for, uh, for Israel. Now we also have a slavery problem. But see, the, all that historical stuff for Israel, all the stuff that happened in history physically was kind of a lesson that God was setting up to teach us something spiritually, they were physical slaves to Egypt. And then we have this spiritual slavery thing going on where we're dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. We are following the course of this world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. It says that there's a ruler over you and it's darkness. There's something going on where you're under its power and you're so powerless, you're dead in it. Like you, you don't even have life to move around. You're just, you're just walking around like a, like a corpse. You're dead in your sins. You have no power to do anything spiritually. You're under someone else's authority. You have the, the, the course of the world that rules over you. You have the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the unseen world ruling over you. And that is this reference to this other character that is oftentimes referred to as Satan. It's it's, just, it's a way of saying the evil one, just the, the one who represents all evil. Satan is a real and actual being, but his name is oftentimes used just to talk about evil as a whole. You have a slavery problem. We have a slavery problem. We are slaves to trespass and sin, to evil, to darkness, to this world, to Satan. We are are slaves to sin. That's how every human being starts off by their own nature. We are slaves to sin and evil. We are slaves to Satan. That's the first problem, the slavery problem. Then we have the wrath problem. We are, by nature, by our human nature, we are children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. 
all human beings, man and woman, boy and girl, are children of wrath. That means that from the moment you're, uh, you're conceived, whatever family you're born into, whatever nation, whatever culture, it doesn't matter. No matter how enlightened you think you are, how woke you think you've become, you are a target of God's wrath. We are slaves to sin. We, we do it all the time. God's wrath is coming to punish sin. It's coming to punish everyone who commits it. And we are children of that wrath. Like it, we belong to that. God will not, uh, will not withhold that wrath from us. We're, we're born in it. We're destined for it. So we got the same two problems. We got the slavery problem and we got the wrath problem. We're stuck in a, in a, under a power that we can't break. Whether it be Egypt over Israel, they were, you know, Israel was stuck under Egypt's power. Or for us, we're stuck under the power of sin and we can't break that. We can't undo it. We can't just be like, I'll be free from sin from now on. I'll just really try hard. I'll set my mind to it. If I set my mind to it, I could achieve anything. You cannot. You have the slavery problem, and then you have the wrath problem. God is going to punish sin, and I'm under the power of sin. I'm guilty of it, and I can't release myself from it. I'm destined to stay with it and go to its course. Wherever it's going, I'm going. Whatever God's going to do to sin, he's going to do to me. And his wrath is coming against sin. He will destroy it eternally. Which means if you are connected to sin, if you happen to be under its power, his wrath is coming after you. It's coming after us. So we have the same two problems as Israel did, the slavery problem and the wrath problem. This should adjust our understanding of, of human beings. We are not good people who sometimes sin and mess up. We are not. We are sinful by nature. Just the way we are, naturally, we are bad. This is why, this is why we don't have to teach our kids how to sin, right? Plenty of young parents here. And the, the kid doesn't even need to be that old before the, the parent comes to the understanding, like, this kid is bent on destruction, right? This child is destined to cause trouble. You, you don't have to convince any parent of that. We don't have to teach our kids how to be selfish. We have to teach our kids how to be grateful. Which is the harder lesson. Tell your kid, hey, if you want something and someone else has it, just take it. Will they be like, wait, that's wrong. No, they'll be like, really? Yeah, you're right. That, there's wisdom in that. But then you go, hey, say thank you when you get something. They go, why? We don't have to teach our kids how to, how to take stuff and steal stuff. We have to teach them how to share. You say share, and they go, why? It's mine. It's mine. And you go, but, but share it with everyone. They say, why? I think... I think people are happy when they, when they hear the idea that God is going to destroy sin and evil. Oh, really? Great. Hallelujah. Right? We love that part. We love the, the God will destroy sin and evil. But then, when you hear 
you're guilty of sin and evil. And God will destroy you. God opposes you. God's wrath is aimed at you. Now it's not so cool of a sermon. It really changes the direction. When you say God's going to destroy all evil and everything's going to be great, we assume, we just assume we're going to be on the, on, the, on the good side of that. Yeah, destroy everyone else who's not as good as me. Right? You kind of set yourself as the standard. You say, I, I passed. And you, you try to be humble about it. I passed just by a little. You don't go like, I, I passed with flying colors. You know, I'm amazing. You don't do that. You just go like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm a good person. I try. I try. But when, when we're honest about what the Bible says, God's wrath is aimed at you. He's coming for you. And there's this warning that you will be destroyed eternally. It's not such a cool message anymore. So you can see why God's wrath is not a popular subject, right? It's not, it's not a fun thing to talk about. Uh, we're immersed in a culture that just takes parts of the Bible and just tells you the parts that make, that make everyone happy. You know, you, uh, you, um, you hear all the time, God is love. God is my friend. I'm a friend of God. God makes my life better. God is always happy to be with me no matter what I do. He enhances my self-esteem. He helps me understand my worth. He's my buddy. He's not judgy. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to have whatever I want or whomever I want. We just hang out. He wants me to have a nice, comfortable life. We hear that kind of stuff. We hear God is love, so why would he ever judge anyone? And when we're immersed in that, like in our culture, when, when, you're, when you're stuck in that and the culture is just screaming those kinds of messages only, then whenever you hear about God's wrath, it's weird. Like, it sounds like you, you and I have two different gods. Mine is my God of love. Your God is cranky. Why is your God mad all the time? And, like, it wasn't always like that. In ancient cultures, they totally understood that God or the gods or whatever gods that they worship, they all understood that the gods of the, of the heavens were angry. They had wrath. That was normal. You had to convince them God loves you. The gospel said God loves you. And everyone's like, what is this? That's not how a God operates. Gods are, are, are uh, terrible kings, scary rulers. And then the, the Christians would go around saying, no, 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 no. God loves you. And the ancient cultures would be like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. Why would a God who is infinitely powerful love someone like me, who is infinitesimally small? So today, it's, it's, it's very opposite. You know, in, back then, they all understood that the gods were wrathful. Today, everyone goes, God loves me just the way that I am, so don't tell me to change. And they hate it if you talk about his wrath. They hate it if you say that God has opinions and strongly disagrees with certain things. It's not a popular subject to talk about God's wrath. And so I'm, I, wanna, I, I don't want to avoid the subject. I want to talk about God's wrath, and I, I'll give it to you in, in four dimensions. Active, passive, present, future. Active, passive, present, future. Right? Look at God's active wrath. In Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, it says, um, 
But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I want you to uh, understand here that Ananias... um, He's, he's sinning against, uh, against the Lord. And the reason why is because he, he sold his property, right? And then he has, he has this much money, okay? Uh, and then he keeps some of it for himself, and the rest he brings to, uh, to the apostles, to, you know, to the leaders of the church. And he's like, this is all the money. And he pretends this is all of it. So now everyone's going to think, oh, you're so generous. You're so godly. You're so unselfish. But really, he's kept back a portion for himself. So he's pretending to be generous, I mean, there, there is still some generosity in there, isn't there, right? He still sold his property and gave some money to the church, so there's kind of like the, oh, well, he's not a to- totally rotten person, but he was certainly dishonest about it. He was saying, oh, yeah, this is all of it. But secretly, he was keeping back some for himself, he and his wife. They both were in on it, okay? So that's, that's the issue. It's not because he kept some money for himself. It's because he faked the godliness. He pretended, this is everything. I've given 100%. And, and he's waiting for everyone to applaud him. Wow. The guy sold his stuff and gave 100% of it. Verse 3. But Peter, who was the leader of the church at the time, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias, uh, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. So today we're going to talk about giving. <laughs> the problem was not how much he gave or what percentage he gave. It's the fact that he lied about it tried to look godly, tried to get more credit. Peter was like, wasn't it entirely yours while you, uh, while you owned it, before you sold it? Uh, it was 100% yours. And then after you sold it, it was 100% at your disposal to do whatever you wanted with the money. And then just the way you lied about the money, that's the lie. That's the lie. And so when, uh, when Peter said these things to him, you know, he, he kind of asked that question, like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And Ananias doesn't even get a moment to answer. It says when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. Instant death. The rest of verse uh, 5. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 6. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So that's the end of Ananias. They carried him out. They buried him. And that takes some time, right? They take him out, put him in a tomb, bury him, all that kind of stuff. So some, some time passes. After an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. You know, wh- 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 where's Ananias? Where's Annie? Right? Walking around. Uh, she, she comes in t- not knowing what happened. Verse 8. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Meaning, uh, th- this money that you guys brought, is this all of it? Just out of curiosity. Is this all, all of it or just some of it? How much exactly did you sell it for? You brought this much. Is that how much you sold it for? And she said, yes, for so much, for that much. The amount that we gave you, that's how much uh, we sold it for. Verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together 
to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. It's a very clear moment where God's wrath is seen because he does something. It's active, right? They were, they were sinning, and then they dropped dead. One and two, both. They dropped dead. God had actively exercised his wrath. Everyone knew God is, is upset about this, and we know it because he did something. His wrath was active. He acted it out. Ananias and Sapphira were both instantly struck dead. It was an act of God. He actively did it. Okay, so that's his active wrath. Here's his passive wrath. Romans chapter 1, his passive wrath. In verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a very uh, elaborate way of saying that uh, God has wrath against sin because God has already told everyone what's good. He's written it down in his word. He's told everyone what's good, and people heard it, read it, they know it, and then they knowingly ignore it or defy it, proudly even. And they tell God he's wrong, that God does not understand all the sophisticated discoveries we've made in our culture. Uh, the things that he says, right and wrong, Sure, he designed everything, but we've, we've developed and we've come to such a greater wisdom on right and wrong. We have the knowledge of good and evil. Now, because God's wrath is, uh, it, is coming for us, because it's being revealed, you have to wonder, well, how is it being revealed? Well, actively, like Ananias and Sapphira, and then passively, here, God has revealed what's good. People have proudly, defiantly, knowingly said, forget it. I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to do my own thing. I'll be my own master. And so watch what happens. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, if, you, if you're noticing the repetition going on here, God's passive wrath is when he doesn't actively do something, he actually does nothing. He sits back and he lets you sin as much as you want. He does not stop you. How, how is that wrath? Imagine this, okay? Let's say that in, in your home, uh, you have a stove. And let's say that you turned the stove on, but then like you, you didn't put a, a pot on or anything yet. And it, you know, there's a flame coming up, okay? Let's say that there's a, a flame coming up out of the stove. And then a child is in your home, whether your child or someone else's child. And you see the child walking up and saying, oh, pretty light. And it walks over to the flame. And you're standing nearby. This child reaches out his or her hand. 
and you watch. If you just sit back and let the child touch the flame, you understand that people would hold you to that and say, why didn't you stop him? You should have stopped him. By not stopping him, you're a monster. That's what you'd say to, uh, if someone did that for a child who doesn't know right and wrong or doesn't have the wisdom to, uh, to avoid a source of danger. You should have rescued him. But what happens when someone comes up and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my hand on this fire. It's going to burn me. It's going to hurt a lot. Watch this, right? Now... It's different. This person knows, right? And what if this person looks you in the eye and says, I hate you. And I know you want to stop me. I know you want me to, to, uh, you know, to, to avoid this flame for my own good. I know you've already told me it's dangerous and all that stuff, but screw you. What do you know? I'm going to touch it. And just, you know, puts their hand on it. You could just be like, okay, fine. Do it. And you can passively just, look, if, if, if that's... If, if that's us, if, if that's the way that, that you view your relationship with me, like I'm some kind of enemy to you, have at it. Go for it. And that's kind of the, the dynamic here. God is like, they have, like, I've revealed to them what's good. Everything about me is, is visible in nature. The way that nature is constructed, the way that biology is constructed, tells you certain things about God's design and how things are supposed to work. And if if proudly, knowingly, and defiantly you say, forget it, we're going to do, th do things our own way, then God says, okay, have at it. If you know the truth and you suppress the truth, I'm not going to stop you then. And so his, his wrath is passive. He doesn't interrupt you. He doesn't intervene. Now, you know, we think that God's wrath is, is like when something bad happens to us. That's what we think, you know. You get caught or you get a disease or you lose something good. You think, oh, God must be angry with me. That must be uh, his wrath, his active wrath. So we only think of the active wrath. God did something to me. But weirdly, in the Bible, when you get caught or when you get some disease or something that like stops you from continuing to sin, it turns out in the Bible that's oftentimes God's mercy on you. He's trying to rescue you so you don't continue in sin. We don't ever think of it that way. We just think, oh, something bad happened. I got caught. God must be mad. And we think that, you know, if, if something bad happens to us, something unpleasant, it must be God's wrath. But God's wrath, his passive wrath, he doesn't do anything. He lets you have it. If that's what you want, have it. Take it. Take it all. The way God made this universe Sin is kind of its own reward. Like, if that's what you want instead of what I'm offering you, go for it. And the more you love it, the more your soul will bend and cave in on it. Some of you know what that is. You know, the more you want a certain sin, the more, the more you're like, I, I have to have this. The more your soul caves in around it because I need it. And that's exactly how it is in Lord of the Rings, that, that character Gollum with the ring. Wants it, hates it, knows it's bad for him, but then like loves it and just, he stops being what he was supposed to be. So God has active wrath and passive wrath. And then there's present wrath, like we saw with the whole Ananias and Sapphira moment, right? Where, where God immediately acts in the present against sin. Immediately, right then and there, in the here and now, boom, he does it, right? And God's, uh, God's 
Active wrath happens like that. Or God's passive wrath also happens in the present, right? Where he lets people today have all the sin that they want and all the consequences that come with it will be theirs too. But his active and his passive wrath are operating today, present. It's also a wrath that will operate in the future. And that's, uh, that's in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. It says, because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This means that there's a future day coming of judgment. And that's where people end up for eternity, uh, either eternity with God or eternity cast out into hell. And nobody likes to talk about hell, but according to God, it's a real place. People go there conscious in punishment forever. Because we don't like to talk about wrath and we don't like to talk about hell, we ignore it or we just refuse to believe it or we downplay it. But hell is real. God's wrath is real. What are we supposed to do? We are slaves to sin and we are targets of God's wrath. And that aims us straight at hell. And that's, that's where Jesus comes in. And this is where we're, we're going to kind of bring this thing down, right? This is where Jesus comes in. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put, uh, God put forward as a propitiation, atoning sacrifice, or a, a substitute by his blood to be received by faith or by trust. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice or the substitution for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, or the, the substitute for our sins. So hold on a sec. That says everyone has sinned, everyone falls short, everyone is going to be a target of the wrath of God. And everyone can be justified, but only by the blood of Jesus. You can be saved by redemption in Jesus. Jesus is the redeemer. He's the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the substitute that you can receive by faith, by trust. So that shows that God's righteousness uh, is, is working because, uh, because he's going to judge sin, right? But it also shows that he's redeemer he's working because he passes over those who trust in the solution, in the Savior. So that's what he did with Israel, right? With Israel, he's like, there's a plague coming. It's going to kill the firstborn in every family. And if you trust the solution I give you, this Passover lamb, then I'll pass over you, and you will not, you will not be uh, affected by this plague. And now there's this thing where God's judgment's coming against sin, against all sin, and his wrath is coming for you. This plague is coming for you, if you trust in the blood of the lamb, 
the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, which is Jesus. That's what the Passover Lamb was really a foreshadow for. If you trust in the blood of the Lamb, specifically the blood that was shed on the cross where the nails were on the right and the left and the crown of thorns but the blood on the top. If you trust in the blood of the Lamb, then my wrath passes over you and you are not in danger of it. It doesn't mean that God just goes, oh, your sins? I oh, forget it. I don't care. He doesn't tolerate sin, and he doesn't just forget about it. He punishes it. How? Well, the same way he did with the whole Passover thing. The Passover thing, instead of you dying, the lamb dies for you. It's a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, a substitute for you. And that's exactly what it is with Jesus. That Jesus dies, he didn't deserve that. He was, he was, he was sinless. He's the only person that was not sinful by nature. And he died in your place. He's a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, a substitute. So it's not like uh, if you trust Jesus, then I don't care about your sins. It's not that. God looks at you. If you trust in Jesus, he's like, well, your sins need to be punished. Just not on you. It's on the lamb, on Jesus. So don't think that it's like, you know, God was mad at the whole world, and then Jesus comes in and goes, whoa, hold on, God. I'm going to do something, and I'll save them. It wasn't that. It's, it's not like God and Jesus were, were disagreeing. And Jesus, if, if you understand, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So it's not like the Father was mad and the Son was like, hold on, let me, let me do something. It wasn't that. John 3.16 is maybe the anthemic verse of the Christian gospel. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It, it was the act of love that God did. It's not like God was angry and then Jesus comes in and goes, hold on. Was God angry as, as a holy and righteous judge? Yes. Was God loving and merciful as redeemer? Yes. He is judge and redeemer. And Jesus himself, he's, he's given the, uh, a throne, you know, and really for eternity. And he becomes the judge against all sin. He is judge. And is he the one that also died for us as our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, our substitution? Yes. He is judge and redeemer. And you receive him by faith, by trust. So I think uh, it's important to know we need God as both. We need him as judge and we need him as redeemer. We need God's wrath and we need God's mercy. Uh, we, need, we need God's wrath as, a, as uh, his holy wrath as judge because how can we look forward to a day where there's no more tears, no more sadness, no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more sin, no more curse? How do we look forward to that day if God is not wrathful against sin and evil and, and brokenness? He will destroy it because he's holy and righteous. He will destroy everything that's bad. So we need him as judge. But we're sinful, and we're going to be destroyed by that too. We're children of wrath, and so we need him as redeemer. We need him to provide a solution. And so Jesus, like the Passover lamb, rescues us from out of our slavery to sin and dies in our place to appease the wrath of God. He solves both our problems. Our slavery to sin is destroyed. And the wrath of God passes over us.
but you have to act. You have to participate. It is 100% a solution provided by God, but you have to acknowledge that his wrath is coming. You have to fear him, and you have to trust in the only solution that he has provided. There's no other name under heaven by which men are saved. It is Jesus. It is Jesus alone. How do you know any of this works? Right? Jesus died for you. How do you know that believing in Jesus will make any difference for anyone in the future? You might die and wake up you know, in the courtroom of heaven and be like, but Jesus died for me. How, how do you know that God's going to be like, okay, well, you're forgiven. How do you know? Where, where, where's, the, where's the proof? Where's the sign that Jesus died for your sins and your sins are fully paid for and it's all good, that there's victory? How, where's the sign of that? It is because Jesus was raised back to life that Jesus rose from the grave. Here then lands the Easter message. If you understand that Jesus died in your place, died for your sins, died to cover you so that God's wrath would pass over you, then that means that instead of you dying and facing eternal hell, he died as the propitiation atoning sacrifice, the substitute. And death, if you notice, even though he died for you, and if, if, if it were you that died, you're, you're, you're gone eternity in hell, right? Death takes him, and then death could not contain him, and death could not hold him down. So that on the day he died, on that day he was in paradise, Chilling with the thief that also died next to him on a cross. He died and he didn't go to hell. He died and he went to heaven. Right? The hell that he experienced was on the cross. And then the moment he died, it's paid for, done, it's finished. And then, just so that everyone gets it, on the third day, he's raised back to life and he returns. Right? He shows up. That part wasn't even necessary. Something had to die in your place, like a Passover lamb. But that Passover lamb didn't have to come back to life. That thing had to die in your place. But just so you know that the, that the whole thing worked, he shows up and says, yeah, I died in your place. And guess what? I also came back. Because I am more powerful than everything that you've ever done and every consequence you deserve. I am greater than the magnitude of your sinfulness. Greater than the severity of your wickedness. No matter how badly you've sinned, how frequently you've sinned, how long you've been in sin, I am greater. And I died for it, I paid the price, and I'm back. And life now takes place because everything you deserved has been paid for. I have been your atoning sacrifice. I've been your substitute. I've been your propitiation. A day will come where every single one of us still will die. So you're kind of like, well, wait, hold on. That sounds weird. I thought Jesus paid that, and he did. He went to the grave. You will follow him to the grave. He was raised back to life. You will follow him back to life. It is a mind trip to me that a day will come 
where your tomb and my tomb will be empty too. You will be with him even after he has destroyed sin and evil. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you, if you understand that the wrath of God is coming, you fear him and you turn and trust in the only solution that God gives, if that's you, you will be with him even after he has destroyed sin and evil and everyone connected to it. Then you will live with no more pain, no more tears, no more sickness, no more sin, no more dying, no more brokenness, no more curse. We had two problems. And Jesus came as judge and redeemer. You were saved out of slavery. You were saved to worship by God, our judge and our redeemer. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you because you are God. You are the only God. You alone understand good and evil. You know how things are designed. And you set how things are destined. God, we pray that we would trust in the solution you give because we are slaves to sin and we're children of wrath. We know you as judge, but we need you as redeemer. And so we pray, Lord, that everyone here would place their faith, their trust in the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Because there's no other name by which we're saved. And anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life with you forever and ever. So we pray, God, that we would understand that truth and look to the resurrection of Jesus as the proof of victory that you have indeed accomplished salvation for us. Having died in our place, yet still you live. Help us to understand the truth of your gospel. Help us to turn to you, to rejoice in you, not to just take the parts of the Bible that we like, but to know you for who you are as judge and as redeemer so that we'd be saved out of our slavery and saved to worship, to worship you. Pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.